Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, good morning. Hey, first of all, I just want to say, is anybody here that was a part of the D-Now weekend? We had a couple hundred students who were part of that. Hey, y'all are here. I'm, I'm so excited. If a hand is up Impressive. next to you, know that you may need to elbow them at some point because they've been up on no sleep for two nights in a row. So um, anyway, but no, it, our student ministry had a great event over this last week, and I know God really worked through that. And so I'm so excited that y'all are with us today. Well, this morning, we're going to be continuing a series we began a couple of weeks ago called Relationship Status. And in this series, we have sought to find a biblical perspective from single to married and a number of questions that we might find in between. And a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the issue of singleness from a biblical perspective. And then last week, Pastor Bruce talked about marriage from a a biblical perspective. And really, those two messages kind of provide the coastline of our conversation Um, But in between those two categories, there are a number of questions that we still have, questions that relate to things like divorce and other expressions of human sexuality. And so in this message today, we really want to address some of those questions. And since I'm too big of a chicken to handle that by myself, (laughs) I've asked Yoda to be with me today. (laughs) Wow, they, they love you, man. See, this is great. No, I, I just so respect Bruce and his perspective and wisdom on, on so many things, including this. And I'm thankful, Bruce, that you're able to join us today. So that's the plan. We're going to address some of these questions in, in our time today. Now, the way that we're going through that, before we begin, I want to just set a, an environment for this conversation. And that environment that is set goes all the way back to the very first chapter of our Bible, Genesis chapter 1. It's in Genesis chapter 1 that the world in which we live was created. And everything that we know came into being right then, right? So, so God created the earth in these movements where he spoke and suddenly there were the sun, the moon, and the stars. And after he created those things, God says it is good. You guys have read this book. Okay, great. <laughs> and then after he did that, he separated the land from the water and he said... It is good. And, and after he made that environment, he pl- had plants grow up out of the ground, and he said, it is good. And after those plants grew, he, he created zebras, and he, and he placed them on this land, and he said, it is good, right? And so what we see in Genesis 1 is that God created everything that there is. This is God's world, and everything that he created, it, it was good. Now, when we say that it is good, what we mean is a a couple of things. At one level, it's good because God created it, and God is a good God. But at a second level, by saying it is good, what God is saying is it is a good place for you and me. Because at the pinnacle of creation, God created humanity, Adam and Eve, and we are the descendants of Adam and Eve. And God built this world for us. It is good for us. I mean, think about it. God doesn't need water. God doesn't need air. God doesn't need plants. We do. And so God made a world that was good to sustain our lives, and he placed us in it. Now, what that reveals to us is a very important principle. If God says something is good, it is also good for us. It's not just good in some arbitrary standard, but it's good to our benefit. 
And that's an important principle to remember as we talk about the things we're going to talk about today. Because it's not just true as it relates to plants or water or animals, but it's also true as it relates to marriage. What God says about marriage is not just good, but it's good for us. And what God says about appropriate expressions of human sexuality, it's not just good, it's good for us. We're a group of people that want to follow the Lord because we live in His world and we look to His Word as our authority. Absolutely. Nothing like going back to the beginning to find out really what God created. You know, there's a, an interesting passage in the Old Testament that's always intrigued me. It's from 1 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 32. It talks about a group of individuals inside the nation of Israel. And here's what it says. They were the men of Issachar. It says, the men of Issachar understood the times and they knew what to do. What does that really mean? It means that they were aware of the trends in the culture of Israel. They knew what was shaping and molding the culture. And they knew how they should respond to that, to the stance that we ought to take. And I've often thought that ought to be a good description of a church, that a church understands the times in which we live and we know what we should do and how we should respond in light of all of that. You know, I grew up in the 1960s, which was often labeled the time of the sexual revolution. And there was a lot of rapid change that happened then in the area of sexual practice. And in one sense, we live in another day of revolution, and it's a truth revolution. And we need to be aware of that. Some of us who are younger, you know, you maybe haven't been on the planet as long, and you might not have a true sense of it, but since I've been around here at Wildwood for 39 years, I can tell you we're in the middle of a truth revolution. And what does that look like? Well, historically... We have always viewed things from a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview, and that worldview was we have a creator. And as a creator, he has the authority to declare uh, what is right and wrong. He has the authority to declare what I ought to think and what I ought to do, because he alone has the knowledge that what is best for me, what is best for humanity, what is good for us. That's often described as absolute truth. Absolute truth means that something is true at all times for all peoples in all places. And we, we embrace that as a church. You know, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Because he's the creator, he can say that. That's absolute truth. It's true for all people at all times and in all places. But that's been changing. There's this truth revolution that's been taking place. And what we're seeing is a growth in people embracing what is called relativism. Relativism means that what is right for one person may not be right for another person. And the idea in relativism is that each person gets to determine for themselves what is right and what is true. It's based on self-perception. And that's really, in our culture, been growing and growing and growing. And downstream from relativism is another idea called radical individualism. And we're really seeing this explode. This basically says that what an individual, if I can say the word, what an individual 
thinks or wants is the highest good that exists. In other words, an individual can make their own truth. And it's wrong to imply that anybody might be making some wrong choices or have wrong beliefs. And in radical individualism, the greatest error is that someone might judge somebody else for not being right. You know who the first people were who practiced relativism and radical individualism? You go all the way back to the beginning again, where we've been in the, in the book of Genesis, and Adam and Eve, they were the first people who did this, and, and they basically denied God's authority and doubted God's knowledge and disputed God's loving goodness, the things that Mark was pointing out as we began. And here's the danger of relativism and radical individualism is it renders God's word impotent. And we can't let that happen as a church because in 1 Timothy 3.15, it tells us that the church is the pillar and the support of truth. So the question really of today in our culture is what is the basis of our knowledge and the basis of our authority? And what you may not be aware is that your leaders, the elders of this church, we have put together a paper giving a biblical perspective on a number of topics, on the topic of marriage, family, divorce, and sexuality. Now, you might ask, why have we done that? Well, the first reason is what I've just talked about. Because of the cultural shift that is going on, we need to clarify a biblical perspective on these things. But a second reason why why we put together this paper was simply because people come to us and ask questions on these topics. People want to know things about marriage and sexuality and divorce. So we thought it would be profitable to put together a paper that clarifies a biblical perspective on all of those things. And it's, it's very affirmational in a lot of ways. We, we have sections on marriage and, and the role of husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and children and grandparents and singles and blended families. But of course, we also have to deal with some other subjects, for example, like the subject of divorce. Yeah, and really, the, the paper is our attempt to take what we read in the Bible and to organize it in a way that would help us understand what the Scripture teaches on this. Absolutely. But, you know, one of those things you talk about is divorce. And, yeah. you know, last Sunday, if you were here, you heard Bruce teach. And one of the things you said, Bruce, was you said this, we were to permanently delete the word divorce from our vocabulary. Yeah. Um, and, and if you, you were here last week, you, this thought may have crossed your mind. Well, why are we to delete it if Moses references it in Deuteronomy 24, if mm-hmm. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 5 and 19, and if the Apostle Paul mentions it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Yeah. How do we make sense of the biblical teaching on divorce? And so really, it's important for us to ask that question. And when we ask it, we need to acknowledge that we're not the first people to ask this question. Mm-hmm. This is actually a question that has been asked um, for for you know, as long as people have been around, including during the time when Jesus ministered on the earth. Uh, The Pharisees actually had a belief about divorce that they they thought that a husband could divorce his wife for any reason that he saw fit. That was the perspective of the Pharisees. And so Pharisees who had that perspective come up to Jesus in Matthew 19, and they ask him a question. They say, hey, Jesus, what do you think about divorce? And as Jesus responds, we begin to see some principles develop about a Christian understanding, a biblical understanding of the topic of divorce. 
So one of the first things that we see is we see God's intention for marriage. We can't really talk about divorce in isolation. We have to talk about it in light of what Bruce said last week, in light of God's perspective about marriage in general. And God's plan for marriage is that one man would be married to one woman for a lifetime. This is God's perspective concerning marriage. And so when the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they said, Jesus, we think that a husband can divorce his wife for any reason. What do you think? Jesus' response is actually not about divorce, but about marriage. In other words, they're saying, we're pro-divorce, how about you? And Jesus' response is, I'm pro-marriage. Jesus gives this response in chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. He says, Jesus says, And therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting there Genesis 2, 24. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And Jesus' answer basically says, look, you think that God is pro-divorce. I want you to know that God is pro-marriage. God's intention, his plan from the beginning was one man with one woman for a lifetime. And because of that, we see in Malachi 2.16 this idea that God hates divorce. It's consistent with God's intention, his, the reason why he created marriage to begin with. So the question then becomes, well, why divorce at all then? And and the answer Jesus provides in his answer to the Pharisees. Divorce comes about because of the hardness of our hearts. Divorce comes about because of sin. And because in some extreme circumstances, sin so mars that marriage covenant, God graciously allows it in those circumstances. Jesus says this after answering his question that's pro-marriage. Verse 7, the Pharisees respond and say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're pointing back to Deuteronomy chapter 24 where God allowed divorce. He never commanded it, but he allowed it. Jesus, they they asked Jesus about that. Jesus answers verse 8. Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Here's the idea. Divorce was was never God's best for marriage. And you know what? Honestly, if you have experienced divorce in your life, and many in this room have, whether it's in your life personally, in the life of somebody that you love, a family member, a, a good friend, whatever... You can honestly look at that situation and the pain that it caused and and say, yes, that is less than God's best. That's less than what is good. And yet you're left with the sting. And what we see in the case of divorce is God allows it under certain circumstances to protect the victimized spouse. He never commanded it. God never said, if this happens, you must divorce your spouse. But God says, if this happens, and in a repeated way, in a a way that is violating that marriage covenant, I will graciously allow divorce in certain circumstances. So what are those circumstances where God allows divorce? Well, biblically, obviously, it's shown here in the area of infidelity, of sexual immorality, as Jesus says in Matthew 19 in the verse I just read. That if, if there is a break, and often this happens even with repeated sexual immorality inside of the marriage, God graciously will allow divorce to protect that victimized spouse. And in the same way, Paul will, will expand it a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he'll talk about how divorce is also allowable if a believing spouse has an unbelieving spouse who abandons them. 
in that incident, the, the believing spouse would be able to have some protection and be freed from that marriage covenant. And so it's allowed, but it's allowed by God's grace in response to sin only under certain circumstances. I tell you, when you're, when you're talking about divorce, we all understand uh, pain that is associated with that. And, you know, as pastors, we're really concerned about people who've been personally touched by this. Uh, too often in the church, you have people, dear people, who just feel the sense of guilt over marital failure. Uh, they feel sometimes like they're second-class citizens, just tainted by sin, and they're just stuck in that category. And we don't feel that way. You know, our, our heart is to want to be able to minister to people that have experienced some of that pain of divorce. Yeah. You know, as, as pastors, we, sit here, we, we know that when we bring up any of the topics we're bringing up today, they don't happen in a vacuum, and they affect real people, including yeah. those of us in this room. These questions we're asking are not a them question, they're an us question. They, they've, they've impacted our lives. And because of that, just as pastors, we want to address kind of us in the midst of this. And for some of us, as we bring up this topic of divorce, um, you yourselves are divorced, and you're divorced, you never intended to be. You know, I, I've, I've done probably 100 weddings over the last 20 years around this place. And as I've done those weddings, I've yet to meet the couple as, as they get married who says, you know what, we're just going to go ahead and plan that divorce at year four or seven or 10. It's, it's never the case, right? We, we find that divorce, it's, it's never, it was never our intention. And some of you, even to an extreme, you're divorced today because your spouse walked out on you. You're, you're divorced today because they initiated an affair and they're with somebody else today. And as you sit here today, you are broken and your, your heart hurts. And we just want you to know as pastors that we are with you in that. Um, we, are, we are compassionate towards your situation. And we also want you to know that your testimony of faith in Christ the fact that you're here and trusting him, even in the midst of your loss and brokenness, is extremely encouraging to us um, as you are continuing to walk with Christ, even in the midst of some challenges inside of your life. And so that's, that's one group. A second group of people that, that might be impacted by this, though, are those who are, are divorced, and you're the one that initiated that divorce, and maybe for reasons outside of the biblical criteria that we just set up. And as we talk about this, and even as we begin to talk about divorce and, and mention it in a couple of categories, you began to look at your shoes, and now you are looking for the exit. I understand, right? Uh, here's the thing. If we continue to talk and we brought up enough different subjects, eventually all of us would look at our shoes and look for the door because all of us are convicted by God's word in different areas. And so there are some, as we mentioned this, you are convicted because a divorce is part of your past and you initiated it and you are feeling some remorse, some conviction by the Spirit of God regarding those actions. If that's the case, we just want to encourage you. You can go before the Lord right now and ask for his forgiveness from that sin, for anything that you did that contributed to that uh, relationship falling apart. And there is forgiveness available in Christ for you today. And if God so leads, if your ex-spouse is, is not remarried, there, there may be an opportunity for God, and you're not remarried, for God to bring about some reconciliation inside of your marriage. We know stories that that exists. Mm -hmm. Or if, if you are remarried or your ex-spouse is remarried, know that the Lord wants you to lean into that current situation, just as we talked about earlier uh, last week. Um, but we just want you to know that as you find conviction about this, we can turn to Christ in the midst of that. And the third thing I want to say is I know that there are people, as we talk about divorce, there are people who are here today who are considering divorce. 
And you may be considering it and talking about it with your spouse, or you may be considering it and you haven't told them yet. But it's, it's a part of the conversation that's going on in your head. And if that's the case for you, a couple of things. First thing is know that we are praying for you. We, we understand we're not perfect people, and there are struggles, and there are real things that are going on. And we're praying for God to work in your life, in your marriage, to do something remarkable. That's the first thing. Know that, that we, are, we are for you, we are with you, and we're praying for you. But, but the second thing is come back. Next Sunday, we're going to be talking about how you can build the marriage you want with the person that you're committed to, and we would love to have you with us next Sunday. Or even on April 6th and 7th, we're going to be having a seminar here at Wildwood Friday night, Saturday called The Art of Marriage, which will really lay out some of God's blueprints for how to build that marriage together, and we would love to have you join us. Bruce is going to be there. I'm going to be there. We'd love to have you join us on, on that weekend in April, and there's information about that in your bulletin. But if you're in any of those categories, know that we know that this teaching on divorce impacts you in different ways, and we want to be in this with you. Great summary. Divorce, indeed, is a detour from God's plan and, and God's goodness. And by the way, when you're talking about divorce, uh, right away, that brings up questions of remarriage. And it's hard to address all of the potential pieces of information that needs to be put together on that subject matter. One of the things we did when we wrote this paper out is there's a section in there on questions and answers that relate to remarriage. And of course, some key issues in all of that is what was the grounds or the reason for a divorce? Uh, Another factor that figures in quite heavily is whether or not an ex-spouse has gotten remarried or not. And it seems to me and to us as we put this information together that when you have an ex-spouse who remarries, it seems like there ought to be freedom for that individual, other individual to get remarried. But it's just hard to delineate all of that. But that's one detour from God's goodness. And then you get into the whole arena of sexuality beyond that, and there's other detours. Yeah, absolutely. And so we, we know that, that our expressions of sexuality, we're faced with a bunch of questions in this area inside of our culture, which we live in. It's something that is even rapidly developing. And so we wanted to spend a little bit of time addressing some of the questions in that area. And really, as, as a scripture passage maybe launch us into that discussion, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 3. So we we talked about Genesis 1 earlier, that God created this world and it was good. But in Genesis 3, we see that inside of that good world, mankind sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. The very first sin occurs in chapter 3. And how did that first sin occur? Well, the first sin occurred because God said, you can eat from any tree in this garden except for one. And Satan seized that opportunity and deceived Adam and Eve into eating from that tree that they weren't to eat from. But, But how did he do that? Well, he made an appeal to their eyes and to their appetites. And their eyes and their appetites deceived them. In other words, Adam and Eve looked at this tree and they saw this fruit. And it says in Genesis 3 that the fruit looked good to eat. In other words, it wasn't rancid. It didn't look sour or spoiled. It looked good to eat. And so their eyes deceived them and they thought, even though God says don't eat from this, I think I'll eat it because it looks good. And what looked good to them created in them an appetite for something that God said was bad. Now, here's the question. When Adam and Eve ate from that tree that they weren't to eat from, was that a good decision or a bad decision? Bad, thank you. We're still awake. It was epically bad, right? It was an epically bad decision that had cascading consequences that affect even us today. But what happened was they trusted their eyes and their appetites more than God's word. And what we're called to do as followers of Christ is actually to take God at his word 
before our eyes or our appetite because our eyes and our appetite can be misled. And and there are many evidences of this inside of the expressions of human sexuality. I mean, think about pornography. Why do people consume pornography? Epic, rampant, millions and millions of people consuming pornography around the world today. Why? Well, because at one level, it looks good to us. At another level, it creates a desire within us, and we want to walk away from God's word that says that any sexual expression, Bruce will talk about this in just a moment from 1 Thessalonians 4, but any sexual expression outside of marriage is not good for us. We want to ignore that and consume pornography anyway with devastating effects. God wants us to take him at his word because his word for us is good. Certainly, uh, it's easy to be drawn into these various detours in the area of sexuality. I want to talk about another one that can happen in not only just pornography, but the concept of living together before marriage, which, by the way, it's not like it had never been invented back 39 years ago, but I will tell you, it has exploded in popularity, this idea that you take a test drive before you're getting married. It seems to be now the view is it's the first step towards marriage is that you live together. This last week, I walked into our living room and there was the Bachelor Olympics after show on the TV. Now, I, I haven't watched the Bachelor Olympics. Honestly, sure, I haven't. Sure, Bruce, we, we believe you. We believe you. I don't even really know what goes on on there other than the fact there's bachelors and there's women on there. But in this show... It's a true confession of the Hess household. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I got it. Uh, In this after show, what happens in part of the show is that there's a guy who's gotten a relationship going on the show with his gal. And at one point in the after show, he hits his knee and he brings out a ring box. And you think, oh, I know what's going to happen now. And then he opens the ring box and there's the key to his apartment. You know, this is the first step towards marriage. And that perspective has been a growing perspective. But again, it's, it's and what those five have found is from 33 to 80% of couples who cohabit before marriage are at a greater risk of divorce. It's because God has always known what is good and what is best. Mark mentioned 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 to 8. I want to just talk a little bit about those verses. Great passage. It's for everybody in the church, but in particular, I think it is geared well towards younger couples who are thinking about maybe living together before marriage. In verse 3, he says, for this is the will of God. Now, every directive from the Bible is an expression of the will of God. But this is one of only three times in the entire New Testament it says, this is the will of God. It's almost like, hey, lean in, pay a little closer attention. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality, referring to all kinds of sexual activity short of the activity between a husband and a wife. And then he says... I have been teaching you that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. What is the vessel? He's talking about our body, that we ought to possess our body in sanctification and honor. And he says, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. You know, if we name the name of Jesus Christ, we shouldn't be like the people on the Bachelor Olympics. 
we should be different from that. We should be honoring God. And he says in verse 6, let no one transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. What is the matter being discussed? It is the matter of having sex outside of a marriage relationship. How do you transgress and defraud someone? Well, if I am unmarried and I'm having a sexual relationship with someone else who's unmarried, that doesn't guarantee we're going to be future mates. So if I'm doing that with this other person, in a sense, I am defrauding a future spouse of something that should belong to them. And he goes on to say, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So we have detours in the area of sexuality. We have the detour of pornography, the detour of living together before marriage, and there's another detour that is becoming very, very prominent in our culture in recent years, and that is the detour of homosexuality. You know, whenever we bring up the subject matter of homosexuality, and we've talked about it before at Wildwood, it is a very emotional one. Why is that? Because all of us have family and friends, people we love deeply, who struggle in this area of same-sex attraction. And I've shared this before, but um, you can go all the way back to my high school days, and I had close friends who were struggling with same-sex attraction issues. I've had close friends, some of my better friends in life that I've known for decades who've struggled with same-sex attraction. I've known many people at Wildwood who are friends of mine who have struggled with same-sex attraction And it just gives a heavy heart whenever this subject matter comes up because a lot of times they feel this sense of isolation and and rejection. In fact, the church at times, I don't mean Wildwood, but the church in general has sometimes had a toxic atmosphere towards people with same-sex attraction issues where there's this ridicule and rejection that comes their way. We don't want to be like that as a church. The church ought to be a safe place no matter where anybody might be struggling. At the same time, we need to speak the truth in love. That's what Jesus did with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, right? He openly identified her sin. He, he basically communicated, I'm exhorting you to cease from that sin. But never at any time did he indicate total rejection or disgust with what she was struggling with. So this whole area, again, it, it sheds... It, the, the, going back to the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis sheds light on this. You know, again, that you mentioned earlier, male and female, we were created. We were created in the sexual realm in marriage to complement one another. That's so obvious when you look at the way that we reproduce. You know, there's a huge message there flashing at us. God's plan is it should be a man and a woman, an intentional plan in marriage and in the sexual relationship. For those who are struggling with sexual attraction, same-sex attraction issues, our desire, our heart for them is that they would experience their true identity in Christ, that that they would embrace a God-honoring lifestyle, which, by the way, is the call that we have on our lives too, right? To embrace a God-honoring lifestyle. What we don't want to do is be condemning people, rejecting people. By the way, in this paper that we have put together There's an appendix at the end, and there's an extensive exposition on the verses that deal with homosexuality in the Bible. And we would invite you, if you really want to wrestle with that, there's a lot of, quote-unquote, new interpretations that aren't really the new interpretations, they're just the old ones covered in new skin. 
Um, but we have all the responses to that biblically there if you'd like to investigate that. But that's just another detour. And then there's, there's another detour in the area of sexuality we need to talk about for a minute or two. Right, really, just in, in recent days, the question of gender dysphoria or transsexualism is just a, a new question. It's, it's not a question that I ever had to answer as a middle school or high school or college student, but yeah. because of some high-profile situations in media and different places, the questions are being asked today. And so what does the Scripture have to say about those that might be struggling in, in this area? And really, what, the verses that you referenced in Genesis 1, Bruce, are instructive for us. God created um, male and female very intentionally. And we believe that even that, that works its way down even into, into our biology. We either have certain chromosomes or we do not. And so rather than asking this kind of gender fluid question, what do I feel like at this season of my life? We think that really we're not to live by our eyes or our appetites, but by the word of God that shows us intention in our creation, male, female, and to live in light of that. And so even this question of gender dysphoria, we got a little more about that, even some of the more complicated situations in that regard in in, uh, in this paper. But just, just to let you all know, too, I mean, our, we have tremendous compassion. If this is the struggle yeah. that someone is experiencing, we have compassion for those in the midst of that struggle, but we always want to call them back to the truth. Yeah, and the struggle is very, very real. It really is. There's a lot of confusion and isolation and desperation for someone's having these gender issues. And our goal is to assist them, not to ostracize them. There's a really great new book out called God and the Transgender Debate, and Andrew Walker has a quote there about speaking the truth in love to people who struggle in this area. Here's what he says. He says, love does not mean looking someone in the eyes and affirming every desire they experience. Love means looking someone in the eyes and communicating the truth of Scripture. If I affirm transgenderism, I am actually doing an unloving thing. I am withholding truth. If we really care about someone, we must tell them the truth. We have to love truth so much that we care about truth more than we care about how the world thinks of us. We have to love people so much that we care about their souls more than we care about their approval. Amen. And, and, you know, that expression and that idea is something that doesn't just apply inside the transgender debate, but really everything that we've talked about today. And that's our heart in communicating this. And I know, Bruce, you've got some thoughts about even just the kind of church we want to be in light of these conversations. Exactly. And we've shared this information before, but there are basically four types, uh, four categories of churches today. The first one is the permissive church. This is the church that basically has succumbed to societal pressure and they just rationalize the Word of God. Uh, The second kind of church that exists in our day might be called the judgmental church. The judgmental church will attack those who maybe are individuals who are embracing same-sex issues or whatever. They attack them without any kind of compassion, and, and they basically just reject them. The third kind of a church is the indifferent church. And by the way, this is the one that is becoming quite prominent in the evangelical community. The indifferent church, out of fear of, of having to deal with a hot topic like we are today, or feel out of being, fear out of being labeled or attacked, chooses to go silent. The church doesn't really say anything on these topics. The idea is, well, we'll let somebody else address that. The church gets spiritual laryngitis, and we don't want to do that. You know, in Matthew 5, Jesus said that as the church, we are salt and light. We are to preserve God's standards, and we're also to guide people 
on the way to righteousness by pointing them to the gospel. And then in verse 13, he makes this interesting statement. He says, if the salt loses its saltiness, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. What's the fourth type of church? Well, it is the grace and truth church. You know, John chapter one says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. If he was, we ought to be too. And that's what we wanna be, a grace and truth church. This is where we stand up for the truth. We speak the truth and love. But we also believe in his grace, his transforming grace and his healing grace. And he can change anyone and everyone. So we wanna be, I believe, a grace and truth church where we show compassion and yet we don't compromise. And, you know, one of the things uh, Bruce and I talked about, how do, you, how do you wrap up a message like this? And, and really, we had total unanimity on this. We were like, yeah. well, as we wrap this up, we want to talk about Jesus. Mm-hmm. We want to talk about hope. We want to talk about life. Because the reality is when we change the conversation from topic to topic, eventually all of us find ourselves under conviction. Where is their hope? Well, the hope is found in Jesus Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 6 says it this way, all we, that's every one of us and every person in the world, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We get to the right topic. We have wandered away from God. But the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. We find ourselves under conviction. We don't just feel bad, but the Bible would say that there's a separation that occurs from God. Where's their hope? The hope is found in that God took his wrath concerning our sin. He laid it on his son on the cross and it was satisfied there. And by leaning on Jesus and looking to him, we can find forgiveness and hope regardless of the challenges, regardless of the questions, regardless of the conviction, because we have a God that loves us so much. He doesn't just bring us the truth, but he brings us the grace too. Absolutely. So let me, let me pray for us as we wrap up. Father God, thank you for just the privilege of worshiping today. And thank you for um, just your grace that in light of the truth, we find conviction. But with your grace, we find hope. And Father, I pray that all of us today would find our hope in Jesus and how you have laid on him the iniquity of us all. Father, we need you and every hour we need you. And so we respond now in song from the depths of our heart, expressing our need for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together.